The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to, to support the show. But for now, welcome to The Legendarium. It's a wonderful intro book. Well, that's why I made a YouTube video on that recently. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Like and subscribe. It's like... <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. This is episode number 300 and something or other. I am Craig Hanks, your host. And with me, as always, I wouldn't trust him with the Magic Kingdom even for a million dollars. It's Drew McCaffrey. Oh, no. You wound me. You wound me. I do. <laughs> Drew, uh, as uh, many of you may have known, is from the Inking Out Loud podcast. I say many of you because, honestly, I think, Drew, I haven't checked, but you are probably due a gold jacket at this point for, like, the Five Times Club. Like we're gonna have to put your Ooh. portrait on the Legendarium website as a like a full panelist because you've been on so many times. I, I don't know. That that sounds good to me. Uh, I expect a uh, a gold record to be mailed to me. Um, I, I need <laughs> I need a, a regular paycheck and <laughs> no, uh, it's it's been a lot of fun uh, being a guest on on the Legendarium. <laughs> Yeah, it's fine. Okay, so if you don't care about the jibber-jabber and you just want to get to the book, go ahead and skip ahead a, f a few minutes. But I do want to mention, it's fun because Drew and I met each other last last year, two years ago, I guess. Two, yeah. I, almost two years ago at uh, JordanCon, and it was just kind of one of those serendipitous things. He mentioned the Legendarium from uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the pulpit, from his uh, from his JordanCon bully pulpit. And, uh, and so I went up and was like, hey, I'm Craig. And he's like, you're Craig? Oh, sweet. And we became fast friends ever since. So, yeah, there's a reason that uh, he keeps appearing on the show. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been really great. So, Drew, thanks for coming back on. And today we are talking about Magic Kingdom for Sale, sold by Terry Brooks, which is a book that, I, you know, I've been thinking about doing for a long time on the show. Uh, but... Uh, it, it's been difficult to pull the trigger on it because we've had so many other things to do, but you and I were talking about it and it just kind of, it felt like, you know what, this is something that both of us could read in a couple of days and uh, do an episode on. And so we just decided to quickly pull the trigger on this one. And uh, so, so here we are. This is a book that I often recommend as a starting point. You know, if, if somebody says, hey, my sister or hey, my girlfriend or hey, my uh, my cousin, whatever, is asking me uh, for a first fantasy book, what should I recommend to them? And everybody's coming out with their recommendations, many of which are great. You know, they're saying, oh, give them Lord of the Rings, give them The Hobbit, give them Mistborn, give them whatever the case may be. Uh, but I almost always recommend this one just as a general recommendation, uh, a blanket first fantasy book recommendation. And so I'm really pleased to, to have an opportunity to dig into why that is. Um, and now, 
before we get to that stuff, I do want to remind everybody all the other stuff. Yes, go please visit us at thelegendarium.com where you can find a Discord link and join in the conversation there. We'd love to have you there. Uh, Patreon.com slash legendarium is where you can support the show. But also, and maybe most importantly right now, is that uh, I've been trying to get back on the YouTube wagon. Um, And so I have been making a few YouTube videos already this year, and we're going to have a bunch more coming up. In fact, don't tell anybody. You know, this is just between me and you, listener. But uh, we're thinking about putting all of our episodes online on YouTube, I should say. Video uh, videos online on YouTube where it's going to be a video podcast. Uh, we're, we're trying to make this happen. So please subscribe to the show there. Watch the videos. So if you can't support us on Patreon, that's a great way to do it, to go in and uh, watch the videos there. So please Ooh. go and do that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, now, Drew, yes. Magic Kingdom for Sale, sold by Terry Brooks. Um, before we get to any of the uh, the specifics about this, shall we do a, a, a recap? Sure. Now, spoiler alert, I, I mean, spoiler alert, I, I, I this is a 30-something-year-old, 35-year-old yeah. book, so... <laughs> Spoiler alert, I guess, if you haven't read it. But also, I should say it's kind of a weird spoiler alert because this is one of the most standard stories you will ever read. There are very, very few surprises in store. It's not the twists and turns that you might come to expect from uh, some of the more modern fantasy authors or modern, whatever, uh, the more contemporary stuff coming out these days. It's super standard, but the basic synopsis goes like this. There is a lawyer by the name of Ben Holiday. He's uh, from Chicago. He's a widower. His wife died a couple of years ago, and he just hasn't gotten over her death. He's devastated by it. His life is directionless, meaningless, and uh, he continues to practice law, but continues to become more and more fed up with it. And among all of this, he's drinking too much. He's separating himself from his friends. When he stumbles across an ad in the Rosen's Christmas catalog for a Magic Kingdom uh, price, $1 million. And he comes across this ad, thinks it's kind of crazy, but he's just drunk enough to consider it. And so he does. He flies out to New York and meets with the seller of said Magic Kingdom and forks over the million dollars, goes through the magic portal, and finds himself in not just a Christmas ad, but the real thing. It is, in fact, a magic kingdom full of wizards and witches and dragons and all the rest. And his job at this point in the story is to establish himself not only as the king in title, but as the king in fact. And travels about this magic kingdom, meets with all of the various people, and has to figure out how to establish himself as the king in the eyes of not just the denizens of this world, but in his own eyes as well. Uh, He does so, there's a happy ending, fireworks, and, you know, happily ever after, etc., etc. Like I said, this is a pretty super standard portal fantasy story. Without any surprises, no, without any surprise twists in store, I'd say the only surprise is the creativity with which Terry Brooks pulls off such a standard story. Drew, thoughts? Yeah, uh, I went into this book, you know, I, I've i just read this for the first time. You know, you, you'd been talking about it for a little while, and, and I was looking for something that was more of a a palate cleanser after, you know, on Inking Out Loud, we spent about the last eight months reading 
were really, really the last like year and a half reading the Wheel of Time and the Cosmere, you know, with some some other also heavy things interspersed dune you know chronicles of amber stuff like that so i was like i want something refreshing i want something that isn't gonna be a thousand pages long i i want something that isn't gonna overwhelm me with world building and you said terry brooks magic kingdom for sale sold i was like all right looks like it's about 300 pages you know refreshingly easy read and it was that, but it was also surprisingly, like, uh, profound in some ways. I, I appreciated how, while there weren't these, you know, Sandersonian foreshadowing twists and turns and, you know, layers to the world building, it was, it was more the layers to the characterization that made this book shine for me. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I I think you're spot on there. It's not like I mean, like I've said a couple of times now. No, there's not the twists and turns, uh, but it does have that profundity that uh, can be well appreciated, and that comes basically from the character of Ben Holiday, yeah. who we can get into. But before we get into the character stuff, let's talk a little bit more about the setup for the story. Uh, how this takes place it's a it's a portal fantasy which a, a lot of people are familiar with even if they're not familiar with the term a portal fantasy is simply a, a fantasy story in which somebody from one world travels through some magical portal or another into uh, some other world and right. then goes through some adventure so the narnia series would be a very very good example Harry of this Potter. going through the wardrobe Harry Potter literally goes through the the wall behind the bar, the leaky yeah. cauldron, right? He goes through the portal into another world, and that's yeah. kind of or, his introduction to it. platform right? nine and three quarters. There are any there number of portals, but, uh, but yeah, if, if you've read Harry Potter, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you've read portal fantasy. You go from the yeah. primary world to the secondary world. And I, I only mentioned that I, I know a lot of people are going to roll their eyes, but yeah, we know what a portal fantasy is. But <laughs> I didn't until, you know, not not too terribly long ago. I was, you know, I'd read a dozen of these and never knew what the term was. And so I wanted to make sure that we <laughs> that we actually <laughs> spelled that out anyway. So, yeah, it's a portal fantasy. The guy is from Chicago. Um, he ends up going through the woods in the, uh, the, the, Appalachians. the foothills of yeah, of West Virginia, I think yeah. it is, or what? One of the Carolinas. I can't quite I remember. I believe it was but in anyway. West Virginia. Yeah, I think it was in the Appalachians, yeah. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so he, so he goes through. He's got this magic medallion. He goes through the woods. Uh, is attacked by a demon. Comes across a dragon, and you know, finally ends up emerging in this magic kingdom, uh, and is uh, welcomed by a wizard, complete with garish robes and long white beard and the, the whole works it's uh, very very welcomingly tropey i would say in some ways and that's let's talk about that first drew this is something that um I, I just listened to your episode shout out to inking out loud go subscribe to inking out loud on your favorite podcatcher today um you guys just did an episode or you just released an episode with one of our compatriots from the legendarium megan she came on to talk about uh, the Dresden Files, the first book in the Dresden right. Files. What's it called Stormfront? Yeah, Stormfront. And um, 
uh, and, and that's something that you guys talk about there is the tropiness. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that, you know, just because it's a trope doesn't mean it's bad. Right. Right. Can you can you give me your riff on that? Right. So <clears throat> and with regards to Magic Kingdom for sale, maybe. Yeah. So tropes are something in in recent years, especially that have become a taboo in a lot of fantasy reader communities and and. Uh, reviewer communities because it's like, oh, this is so old. This is so tired. And and I think it's still a little bit of a relic from the newness of things like A Song of Ice and Fire in the, the mid-2000s when it really became popular where we had authors directly writing in opposition to common fantasy tropes. And uh, and, and that's also not a bad thing. But what it comes down to is when an author is writing with knowledge of the tropes, you can write a really good trope-filled story still today. You can also write a really good uh, reactionary, anti-tropey story, but you're also going to be uh, dealing with a situation where that's been happening for so long now that there are new tropes you know that mm. that are almost you know tropey anti tropes, and so the, the the anti tropes have become the tropes exactly, <laughs> and uh, and and so what it comes down to is like how well do you know what you're writing about and how you're writing it? You can you can read a book that's going to be really tropey and it's going to come across ham fisted. It'll it'll be uh, super predictable and boring and and it, and it just won't won't have that vibrancy you want in a story. Because the author isn't writing with knowledge of the tropes. And that is not what's happening with Magic Kingdom for Sale. Terry Brooks clearly understands what he's doing. Uh, There's a deliberateness to the steps on the hero's journey that uh, Ben Holiday undertakes. There's a deliberateness uh, and almost a slapstickiness that comes out of the knowledge of these tropes of, you know, the, the wizard mentor and, and the scribe, you know, with uh, Abernathy, you know, who's, he's, yeah. he's not just a regular scribe. He's literally a, like a dog, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so you, you have these moments where Terry Brooks is signaling to you as a reader saying, yes, this is a trope. I'm aware it's a trope. You're aware it's a trope. I'm going to, buy into that trope, but I'm also going to give it its its little flair. It's a little bit of extra flavor to make it enjoyable, even though it's something you've probably seen before. It's almost like he, uh, he acknowledges it. He kind of almost winks at you a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's maybe the wrong word to say because it's not cynical at all. He's uh, he knows exactly what he's doing, and but he's not apologizing for it. He no. says, "Yeah, okay, no, this is a wizard character." But instead of making the wizard just a pure joke, uh, Quester Thews, the, the the wizard character, instead of making him a total joke, he he gives him depth and uh, and and meaning and a full character. Uh, I, I don't know about arc, but at well, least some depth to him. I think he has an um, that, arc. It's uh, not a. It's not a particularly demanding character arc, but there is an arc there. He he has development. Yeah, no. I guess I guess in 
in 300 pages, Ben is the only right. one who actually gets an arc, but everybody else gets uh, some depth to them, it seems. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, no, I, I think that's spot on. Now, for some background, for people who don't know, we did Terry Brooks previously. This is, gosh, <laughs> four or five years ago. Uh, we did the original Shannara trilogy on the Legendarium, and the Shannara trilogy, uh, he started publishing those in 1977, and you want to talk about Tropy. The first Shannara book is almost a direct ripoff in a lot of ways of The Lord of the Rings. It, the, the pattern, the journey, the a uh, lot of the characters are the, fellowship. the same. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's essentially the fellowship goes off on a quest, etc., etc. Now, I don't... <laughs> a lot of people hate it for that reason. I think that's that's bunk. You know, you can go back and listen to those episodes. I really like the book. I think he did some really interesting things with it. But my point here is just to say that since 1977, this guy had been writing the Shannara series with that kind of Lord of the Rings uh, mentality, right? And so, like you say, Drew, he knows the tropes. He yes. knows exactly what this genre is. And so now, in 1986, when this book is released, by now, he's got a pretty firm handle on the genre. He's sold a bajillion copies of his books, and, you know, he knows what he's doing. Um, and so now, here we are with this in 1986. He's going to go further uh, in the 90s when he gets into his uh, Word in the Void series. Uh, if you haven't read those, please go check them out. They're really, really good. The Word in the Void. Uh, he's going to get into some urban fantasy with that and further uh, get away from his uh, kind of Shannara uh, roots with that and and then tie it back in. But that's another thing. So, anyway. <laughs> but the point is, I, I guess, uh, bringing it back to, to Magic Kingdom, yeah, he this dude is steeped in the tropes. He knows what he's doing with them, and it's absolutely fantastic, I say. So now we've got this guy who buys the Magic Kingdom, he goes through the portal, he becomes king, and the rest of the book, let's just talk about the, the plot here for a minute, Drew. He is, it's, it's not necessarily go slay the dragon, it's not quite the fairy tale thing, but what it is, is it's kind of a modern story with all the fairy tale trappings. And the story is he needs to learn leadership skills. He needs to learn what it means to put himself into the, you know, like that, that leadership position to claim the throne <laughs> with his knowledge of modern leadership principles. Um, and so that's what he does. He goes and meets with all these people and tries to strike deals and, you know, be diplomatic and all that stuff. And things keep blowing up in his face. And, uh, you know, eventually he has to put it, all the pieces together, right? Yeah, and so reading this book, I was struck by the the structure as a D&D campaign. It's, <laughs> okay, it's that right. there is an invisible dungeon master saying, you need to go here and do this. Let's see how you roll. He rolls poorly. And now he's like, all right, well, I got to go over here and try and figure, you know, fix it. And then he rolls poorly again. And then he goes to this other place and he rolls a little bit better, but still not great. You know, and and uh, and so it's it's this manufactured progression where you feel the authorial hand 
very mm-hmm. strongly on it. And this ties back to um, uh, a trope. I'm not sure if trope is the right word, but at least a pattern with early fantasy maps. Uh, This is something, you know, I, uh, uh, about a year ago now, I was fortunate enough to interview Isaac Stewart, who is the art director for Brandon Sanderson, Dragon's Steel Entertainment. He does all Brandon's maps. And he talked about his process making fantasy maps for Brandon Sanderson. And he mentioned how in the early years, you could open a book and there'd be a map and you're like, okay, sweet. There's, this is the land I'm going to explore. This is exciting. But, but when you started getting critical of it, you would look at the map and you're like, okay, there are these eight places named on the map. We're going to go to every single one. Yep. And that is exactly what happens in this book. It's well, where do you think that came from? That came from books like this, right? Well, yeah, right, right. And, and so it's, it is a trope. I, I, if you want to use the word trope, I don't want to overuse it because, you know, that gets dangerous. It is a convention. A convention. Yeah. Better, (laughs) better term. Um, And so it's like you feel the authorial hand present in the story. Um, But that doesn't mean it's not fun because for me, I had a lot of fun looking at that map and being like, okay, we, we started here and then we went to here. Like, you know, we started, we, we went by the heart and then we went to Sterling Silver. And I'm like, all right, where are we going to go next? Oh, oh, we're going to go to, you know, uh, the Greens Ward. All right. Are we going to go, you know, are we going to go to the, like the Fire Springs next? Or are we going to go to, right. you know, like, and, and, and so it was fun for me to kind of try to predict his path around the map. <laughs> and, and yeah yeah sure and i admit i i was i was uh, about 50 50 on that i was not great at predicting it um uh, but but still by the but by the end of the story you had been to everywhere you thought you were exactly gonna go. and 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 yeah. so it's like the structure of the story is is not too surprising overall um, and if you're, if you're a really critical reader, you're going to be like, okay, yeah, you know, this feels forced at certain points, but this is the kind of book that encourages you to not be a critical reader, right? It, okay. It, so, so let's delve into that a little bit. Yes. Yes. Because it, it presents itself in such a casual manner. It's a, a likable main character sympathetic guy you know he's he's struggling with the loss of his wife he's living this stagnant existence and he finds the potential for a portal fantasy and for people reading this book you want that fantasy you want to experience that with him so you're you're rooting for him from the get-go because you're like believe it please believe in the ad do it you got to do it, man. You know, and and it it makes you invest yourself emotionally in his choices in a really expert way. But it also encourages you to not like 
rip apart all of his decisions early on because if you're going to do that you're you're counteracting your wishes if you're going to rip apart his decisions you're going to be like his his uh, law partner right you're going to be like this is dumb this is totally going to be fake you know you, you start picking at the logic of it and you're like well this this doesn't add up but that that runs counter to I want this to be a fantasy story and I want this guy to have fun and I want him to figure his life out, you know? Right. It's counter to the spirit of the book. Exactly. No, I think that's, that's really smart. I hadn't thought about it that way. His law partner, Miles, mm-hmm. uh, who he's been practicing with for, you know, decades. Miles plays the part of the cynical potential critic of the book <laughs> saying like, you're insane. Stop taking this so seriously. How dare you? And then, and Ben goes off and does it anyway and gives the non-cynical reader a chance to just say, you know what? No, I'm going on an adventure. Right. Here we go. <laughs> right. And, and, and that, that, that's what makes it, the book enjoyable, right? Yeah. It, it does require you to turn that off a little bit. And I don't mind that. I don't mind a chance to let go of... Um, uh, of that super critical part of my brain, which I will fully admit is <laughs> yeah. very much a part of me. Like, you know, if you've listened to The Legendarium for any length of time, you'll know that somebody like Ryan, Ryan is the fan and I'm the critic, right? But it's really nice to let go of that part of me uh, every once in a while. So yeah, that's fantastic. And, and yeah. part of this whole discussion that we should talk about is as you've talked about the structure of the book a little bit we've danced around this a little bit it is far more than uh you know anything that i can think of that's been published in the last 20 or 30 years it is structured much more like a fairy tale than like a regular fantasy novel in that as you're talking, Drew, about, oh, okay, so I'm seeing all these places on the map, and they, you know, I know I'm going to go here and here. I'm going to have these adventures. You're going through these chapters. I'll pick one at random. It would be the the uh, Nightshade chapter. She's the witch that lives yeah. in the Deep Fell. Um, you know you're going to go visit Nightshade because the name has come up several times uh, throughout the book. It's named on the map that you're going to go to the Deep Fell. And so when you finally get there, in... In another fantasy book that you and I are used to reading these days, you go visit the Deep Fell, and you're going to spend a long time there. You're going to get a bunch of backstory on how this thing came to be, and who Nightshade is, where she's from, and what her motivations are. On the other hand, you've got a fairy tale where you have a character going through this you know, hero's journey, essentially, kind of a, an odd little hero's journey, uh, but he's going to encounter obstacle a obstacle b obstacle c and he gets to all of these he i he solves it or he doesn't but then he moves on and he learns and he a goes lesson. to the next thing yeah exactly he learns a lesson he goes to the next thing he learns a lesson he goes to the next thing and it's essentially forgotten um at least for the purposes of this book uh, and that is very different structurally. And I bet that if somebody didn't know what they were getting into and they thought that they were reading the fantasy book, the type of fantasy book that they were used to from the last little while, that might be a little frustrating. But it's the kind of thing where I feel like if you know what you're getting into, then uh, it's kind of fun and refreshing to to kind of skip like a rock over the waters that in another fantasy book you'd be plunging into, right? Right, yeah. In contemporary fantasy, 
you know, whether it's grimdark or high fantasy or low fantasy or whatever, there tends to be a pushback on this where uh, authors put their characters in these kind of situations, in, in these conflicts, and want to sort of tease the reader by saying, oh yeah, here's a lesson the character is going to learn and then yank the rug out from under you later where they learned the long, uh, wrong lesson, you know, they, they, uh, or they, they completely missed what they should have been paying attention to. And that causes greater problems later. That's not what Terry Brooks is doing in this book. You know, he's, he's not trying to be clever with you. He's not trying to, shock you or or subvert your expectations he's trying to give you a satisfying story and yeah exactly period so okay now let's get into the characters that he uses to tell that story we i think we've talked about the the setting to death a little bit (laughs) so let's Let's talk about the characters. The big one, of course, is Ben Holiday. We can spend a little bit of time on the secondary characters. But, uh, Drew, something that you mentioned um, as we were reading through this, because you know, you and I text back and forth, etc. Yeah, yeah. uh, and uh, as you and I were reading through this, the thing that you said that struck me, you were maybe 100 pages into the book, and you said, man, this is surprisingly dark. This is darker than I expected. <laughs> yeah. and, and I... I thought to myself, yes, exactly. This gets to the profundity that you were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, where Ben Holiday's journey is... Uh, we've been talking about this as a, a kind of a light romp through fantasy, you know, through fairy, etc. Uh, but when you... If you do attach yourself at all emotionally to this story, it is pretty dark. Yeah. He's not in a good place when he starts... And it takes him the entire book to get into a decent emotional place, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, as as a reading experience, it's a relatively easy book to to go through. But then, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I went into it expecting that. But uh, because I was expecting that, I wasn't expecting um, the emotional depths we were going to reach in this and and there are some real emotional deaths like uh you know he he brings you know so few items with him through the portal you know and and one of the things he brings is is one of his prized bottles of glenlivet nice uh and and uh you know he's like oh this is gonna be a special occasion thing it's you know I'll, I'll dip into it here and there which is you know for me i i you know, when i turned 21 i i got a from my boss i got a hundred dollar gift card to a liquor store and i went out and i nice. bought a, a <laughs> bottle of glenlivet 18 year and really? i wow. and i told myself i was like this is a special occasion drink and i have opened that bottle three times you i am still have 30 it. years old <laughs> okay. I, I wow. opened it on the occasion of finishing a first draft of a novel twice, and I opened it on the occasion of one of my absolute best friends in the world uh, going off to the army. And, you know, and so I still have about half the bottle. And and so when, when I had this moment reading Ben 
treating his bottle of Glenlivet in the same way. I was like, okay, you know, like I, I'm I'm waiting for a scene at the end of the book when he's finally crowned king and and he can pour himself a glass of Glenlivet. But but no, maybe a third of the way through the book, he's like cratered and he just gets hammered off of his special bottle of Glenlivet and has an awful night, you know, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> what? Whoa. <laughs> yeah, no, he's uh, he is in a bad way. And I really I haven't read this book to to, uh, to put all my cards on the table. I grew up with this book. I was born the same month that it was published. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I grew up with this book. Uh, but I hadn't read it in more than 10 years, probably 15 years uh, until this time. And so that scene in particular where he, as you say, it's about a third, maybe halfway through the book. He's gone through some experiences. We talk about the try-fail cycle yeah. uh, in in stories. Basically, he's failed his entire way through this story. Nothing has gone right. And uh, that scene when he gets raging drunk on his Glenlivet and just wastes the whole thing trying to uh, drown out the, you know, the sorrows from uh, the first half of the book is, uh, is pretty poignant. Uh, coming at it as an adult, where it's just sometimes all you want to do is forget. And, uh, you know, and then he wakes up the next, the next morning, nurses his hangover, and when he's done, he just says, all right, let's get to work. Yeah. Uh, and so it was satisfying in seeing the, the, uh, <laughs> the depths that he craters to, as you put it, um, but then also his determination, which is kind of inspiring to see in a book with a character who just says, you know what, yes, I failed every step of the way, and I'm going to keep going anyway. So. Yeah, and and part of what maybe had such an impact on me with that scene was where it landed in the book, uh, and and this is you know once again this is one of these differences between contemporary fantasy structure versus the way people wrote books decades ago. And I'm not even saying this is like a hard and fast rule because I've, uh, while I was reading this, I was also reading, uh, for instance, the, uh, uh Garrett PI books by Glenn Cook, which were also written in the mid to late eighties. And, and, and they have a different structure. Uh, but what I have come to expect in a lot of books because of reading things like the wheel of time and Brandon Sanderson, George R. R. Martin, you know, you hit this point about 75, 80% of the way through the book. And that's your, your rock bottom. That's when everything yeah. is going wrong. And there is sort of, uh, th there's like a plot point in Magic Kingdom for Sale about 75 or 80% through the book where that happens. But character-wise, it's much, much earlier. It's in this moment, 30, 40% of the way through the book. And that was surprising to me. And I think that hit harder because of it. I wasn't expecting to have a moment like this with Ben breaking down uh, until much later. He shows up in this Magic Kingdom and uh, <laughs> everything is... It, it's 
weirdly unexpected because it's exactly as the ad mm -hmm. portrayed, right? And so you'd think, well, isn't this what you wanted? But on the other hand, it's like, no, nobody would expect to show up and see it exactly as it was portrayed in the ad. And so he, um, <laughs> so he shows up and realizes that he's bought a Magic Kingdom that is broken and, it, you know, for 20 years it has been falling into utter disrepair and it's up to him to save it. And so it only takes a few weeks for him to realize that he is in way, way, way over his head. And so that I, I feel like that moment is great uh, insofar as it makes him... Uh, it, it's, it's the deciding moment. Am I going to give up or am I going to make this happen or die trying? And that can't happen 75% of the way through the book because you need that moment of decision early on. Yes, but this is where my main criticism of the book comes in. Okay, all right, here we go. Even when he makes this choice after his drunken night and, and he, you know, he wakes up hungover, blinding headache, he's like, all right, but I, I got to... I got to work on this. I got to figure out what we're going to do. He still has repeated moments afterward being like, maybe I should use the medallion and quit. Maybe I should use the medallion and quit. Right. And every if, single if time. He removes, if he removes the medallion off his neck, he's transported yeah. back to earth and it's all over. Yeah. And, and every single time he, he comes to any slight complication he's like oh maybe i should do this and and to me that undercuts his decision from this night a little bit it, it doesn't ruin the book for me by any means i i still enjoyed the book i still enjoyed his character development a great deal but i feel a little bit like if if there was any narrative crutch that terry brooks fell back on it was this and and uh, for okay. and for a book so filled with tropes, this it is couldn't the afford thing? the crutch. Well, well, no, <laughs> no, because uh, what, what I'm saying is he doesn't use any of the tropes as crutches, which is where tropes become problematic. Uh, when, right. Okay, I see you know, what you're saying. He yeah. he he avoided all of that, but then he had this other character-driven crutch. That was pretty much the only frustration I had with the book. Okay, so I disagree, but Ooh. only gently. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hear that, Drew? Drew, I, gent I gently disagree with you. Um, it, prepare, prepare your body, Drew, for me to gently disagree. Oh, uh, dear. Okay. <laughs> so, no, what I mean is I don't mind that recurring emotional theme i only mind it in the narrative sense and so here here let me let me delve into this a little bit more he as you say comes back to this again and again this idea like you know oh maybe gosh maybe now's the time i should take, take the medallion off <laughs> yeah. and just end it all go back to earth and call it good let's relate this to a decision that that somebody might make in their real life. Okay, so this is... Uh, let, let me relate it to something I've been thinking about. You know, I hope none of my bosses are listening to this because uh, <laughs> for, for obvious reasons. But something that I've been thinking about for months now is 
gosh, am I doing the right thing being employed full time by a corporation or should I go it alone and be self-employed? Uh, you know, if I did that, maybe I do the legendarium three times a week or five times a week and, you know, do more legendarium products and you know, more freelance projects and more stuff to, you know, to, to go on my own a little bit and see if I can make it financially that way. If I made that choice, I could wake up one morning and say, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I've got a plan and I'm sticking to it. You know, I, I woke up after my drunken night of drinking, you know, a whole bottle of Glenlivet and now <laughs> I'm ready to go for it. It is not realistic to expect that I wouldn't have many, many, many moments after that where I would say, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? Did I make the right choice? This is insane. I need to call up my former company and just beg them to take me back. This is crazy. You know, so as an emotional point, I do not mind that one little bit. Uh, where I think it gets a little bit uh, tiresome is uh, as a narrative effect where he keeps using the same language over and over and over again, where every chapter, like I said, it, it's fun that it's a, kind of this fairy tale with these different obstacles. Every chapter you're going to a new location and facing a different obstacle, but every time he does, he spends at least one paragraph, maybe two, in every chapter with Ben kind of going over in his head his failures up to this point. Mm -hmm. And so by the time you've gotten to the sixth, seventh, eighth one, it's you're like i've read this paragraph so many times and i think i've got it okay thank you um, yes and, and so does that make sense emotionally i'm fine narratively yeah i wish he'd kind of give it a rest a little uh yeah i completely agree uh so you you actually didn't disagree with me at all because uh you just you just <laughs> okay. put it you couched it in better terms than i could um it it makes sense on a, a character level but narratively it undercuts things and when you get to the climactic moment of the book when you know he he has the mark bearing the down Lord. on him and and he has to have this moment of will i choose to be the king or will i take the medallion and escape when you've already had him make this choice seven or eight times you're like <laughs> of course he's gonna choose yes i'm gonna be the king and and so it, it robbed a, a lot of the uh tension from the climactic moment of the book and and sure you know there's still the the duel the battle between sure the mark yeah. and, and the paladin you know as ben but once you're in that duel you know what's going to happen. You know, like, you know I, he's going to triumph. Yeah. You know, and, and so that's not where the tension is. That's just excitement. That's, you know, that that's uh, sitting in front of the big screen TV watching the special effects. You know. The showdown. Yeah, yeah sure. The, the tension is in his choice. And by having him make this choice so many times beforehand the same way every single time it robs the ultimate tension of the climax and I, I mean maybe maybe you can do it where there's there's some sort of 
Sorry, my cat is uh, playing with a box in the background. Um, Being a cat, yeah, yeah. Um, it, maybe there there could have been some way that he could he could make the choice the other way without having be an ultimate choice uh, that could have helped maintain the balance yeah. of the tension, main, maintain the tautness of that narrative string. But I think he didn't quite pull it off. And, and that is, you know, like I said, that's my main criticism of the book. Yeah, no, totally. I, I think, uh, like you said, you and I are on the same page. Maybe we would just put it slightly differently. <laughs> I guess I, I just don't mind that because, like I said, right at the top of the show, this is not a story with twists and turns. Yeah. As far as narrative tension goes, it's... Uh, it's not about will he or won't he choose. Of course he's going to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah. says so right on the cover of the freaking book, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the the Daryl K. Sweet uh, oh, yeah, so good. cover art. So good and which, so yeah, bad. Which is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, he had a dog person on the cover and that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I love that cover. I, I understand that's more nostalgic than anything but i'll always love that cover yes anyway so yeah i guess um i i think you and i are on the same page i probably just am less uh on that page than you whatever yeah. <laughs> it means less to me so sorry i get i get very critical but but this is as i said this remember is a drew we're in, taking it, we're taking off our critic glasses okay uh, it, it encourages me to not be critical and i really <laughs> liked that I, I yeah. needed that, like, kind of weight off my chest, you know, especially as uh, for for the span when I was reading this book, I was also reading a couple of, like, you know, advanced review copies that I have to be critical for, you know, and, and I'm like, mm. you know, and one of them especially is uh, is like a, this super involved, like, political thriller uh, space opera, um, a desolation called peace by our, our Katie Martin. And, nice. and I'm like, yeah, I, I love this stuff, but it's, it, I mean, it, it's, it wears on you to, to read a book that way and to yeah. be able to flip that switch off and read something like magic kingdom for sale sold is ultimately just, just a joy because yeah, you know, even when I have criticisms, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I have criticisms. It's fine. This book isn't trying to like, you know, be the greatest literature ever written. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's entertainment. It's entertainment. And, exactly. And, and, and you know what it does? Let me, let me bring this. We're going to get to some other character stuff in a moment, but let me talk about what this book is trying to accomplish in reference to our three levels. So yes. for you know for those who have been longtime listeners you've you've had this little uh, walkthrough before but if you're new to this, the podcast I'll do this quickly the three levels theory is that um, a, a story can be divided into three levels the first being the surface level on which a story is told the actual plot taking place the second level would be any social or political commentary that the story is trying to make. Uh, and the, you know, if you want a great example of that, go watch South Park. South Park is yeah. almost purely level two stuff, social and political commentary. Level three is the personal and close interpersonal uh, s stuff 
in a story. So th this would be when, you know, you're reading some uh, Aesop fables or something like that, and it's like, the moral of the story is... That's your level three stuff. The stuff that it's trying to teach you uh, to help you be a better person or, right. you know, be a better companion or friend or whatever. Okay, so the one of the reasons I like this book so much is because, like we've kind of alluded to several times... This is a simply told story about a guy who goes through a portal into a fantasy world and becomes king. There are no surprises there. The surprise comes, as we've said, in how Terry Brooks is able to take a level one story. This thing lives in level one. It, there's, not a, there's not a ton more to it than that level one stuff. He skips past most of the social and political commentary he kind of skims over that to, you know, get through a few of the adventures uh, where he's trying to, you know, do some uh, some diplomatic wrangling or whatever. But he he dips a little bit more into that level three stuff, that personal emotional journey and the and the relationships as well that he has with his tiny little court that he has at the castle, <laughs> uh, that he has with uh, Willow, who we meet uh, uh, halfway-ish. Yeah, the right about halfway. Um, and so, so that's, what I, I, that's what I love about a good level one story. It's not trying to do too much in any other level, but he does effectively dip into... Uh, especially level three, right? What say you? Oh, I completely agree. I feel like in the hands of a contemporary fantasy writer, there would be such a compulsion on the writer's part to be like, to, to make some grand statement about the state uh, of the United States judicial system. Well, you know, <laughs> or the UN, or uh, yeah, the whatever. Yeah, that there would be some big social justice, you know, message, and and it would just be hammered down your throat. Because I have read many books that do exactly that over the last decade. You know, and and Terry Brooks, he didn't he didn't bother with that. He was like, look, yes, Ben Holiday is a lawyer. Yes, he's in, he's disenchanted with the state of things in in the US law system that's not the point of the story the point of the story the is this character is trying to make himself a better person yeah it, it, those those moments are uh, are interesting in how vague they are mm -hmm. when he's having a conversation with Miles his law partner and uh, Ben says to Miles something along the lines of, can you honestly tell me that you are satisfied with the way the justice system works? And that's where he leaves it. They don't yeah. delve into any specifics. There's no. And so the genius of this is that anybody from whatever political persuasion can read this and be like, yeah, yeah, it's all broken. The, the system. <laughs> ah, <laughs> Right. <laughs> so anybody can go, can go in and read whatever they want into it uh, without it delving uh, into that stuff. So, you know, you're you're talking about these other contemporary novels that delve into social justice issues or maybe environmental issues or what have you. I I want to make clear that I don't think that that's so bad if it's done well. No, I have no problem with that. 
but it can get a bit laborious and preachy when books, uh, when you're reading book after book after book that does it, uh, getting into that, especially the level two stuff. Um, so it's nice to, to pull back and get something that's purely level one, level three, and, uh, little level three. And this is why Magic Kingdom for Sale Sold is such a great intro fantasy book. Those those books, you know, like you said, it's not necessarily a bad thing when you really want to delve into those social issues in, in your fantasy or science fiction novel. It's not a bad thing, but it's much more demanding. And, you know, I mean, maybe some people want to go straight into speculative fiction with a really demanding social message, but... I feel like a lot of people probably want to just be like, oh, this is going to be escapism. I want to read a fun book. Yeah. You know, and and that's what Magic Kingdom for Sale is. And 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 it's it's something that may tease, you know, that that level 2 uh you know, desire. You you read it, you're like, okay, that was a really fun book. I enjoyed reading a fantasy book. Oh yeah, you know my mind is dwelling on this like lawyer social justice stuff. I want to read something that delves into that more, and so that's how you know it provides a gateway into different branches of speculative fiction. You could also have somebody be you know read this and be like, you know, I'm not interested in that, but I w- I want to read something about dragon politics. You know, all right, I, I need to go check out Dragonlance or Dragon Riders of Pern. You like, or right. or I want to read something that that deals with uh, uh, you know complex dynamics between uh, uh, the primary Earth, you know, primary world and secondary world. And you're like, okay, you know, we have this Meeks guy who's like screwing with uh, the people of Earth financially by manipulating his secondary world. And then you're like, oh, you know, maybe I should check out The Acts of Cain by Matthew Stover, which which deals with like corporations, you know, uh, dominating the primary world and using this this portal to fantasy worlds as a, a means of of, uh, you know, financial success. Yeah, it, it's a great gateway into many different subgenres of fantasy and science fiction it's it it's it, it's a wonderful intro book well that's why i made a youtube video on that recently please subscribe to our youtube channel <laughs> like and subscribe it's our, uh yeah no absolutely so drew we've got a few more minutes left let's uh if we can take a few more minutes and talk about um some other stuff from this book we've taken a lot of thirty thousand foot view of this book Uh, But let's go back. We've talked about Ben as a character. Let's talk about some of the other secondary characters. Uh, One of the interesting things about this book is that there is only one major character. (laughs) This is so different from some of the epic fantasy that you and I are used to reading. (laughs) Where, you know, you're following at least three to five major characters and then, you know, the supporting cast. There There is a major cast of one and a supporting cast of just a few. Um... But let's talk about the uh, the ladies in this book because um, it's an interesting subject to me. Because as by my count, there are three women in this book. We've got one who is dead, one who is an evil witch, and one 
who is a uh, uh, a perfect fairy creature with green skin and a delightful body who he stumbles across naked in a pond. Right. Uh, who is also a tree. That's, who is also a tree. Yes, thank you. Very important. Um <laughs> uh, so we can we can leave aside the dead wife and we can leave aside Nightshade, the evil witch, but let's talk about Willow a little bit. Um I I will say having read the the whole series, she is a wonderful character through the series. Oh. I like her a lot. Uh but in this book it's a little bit like, okay, so he needed a we needed a girl. We needed a love interest. Yeah. And that's about all that she gets here, right? Uh, it, it is. I I think the most interesting Willow ever gets is in the first scene she appears in. Uh, when, the naked in a pond scene. Well, because there is a... Uh, a sense of danger to her, or at least I got it. I, I fully did not trust what was going on there. I saw her okay. as a siren figure, not as a naive, innocent, uh, ideal love interest. Uh, I thought there was. I thought that whole scene was fraught with danger. As it turns out, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> but so that scene, reading it the first time, was by far the most interested. I ever was in her character. Uh, at least, I, obviously, I haven't read the the rest of the series, but uh, and and then there is a a relatively distant second when she goes out to watch her mother dance and she turns into a tree for the first time. Other than that, like after that scene, she becomes and and this is like. You know my my sort of secondary criticism of this book, uh, the the treatment of female characters. She's pretty much only used as a vehicle for Ben's character development. Sure. Um, and and I, I had hopes for her to be something more up on you know up through when she becomes the tree and and he has this like he's repelled by by her change and and I was like all right there 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 could be depth to her and then yeah. there just wasn't and I'm sure I'm sure there's more depth to her later in the series you know he's, he's right but we're but, talking about this book and, yeah. and I think um if this book let me go out on a limb here and say you know I I haven't talked to Terry Brooks about this so I don't know <laughs> but my guess is that there was probably some more Willow on the cutting room floor that didn't make it past editing because this feels like it could easily be a 500-page book, but it ended up being a 300-page book. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And a lot of that got cut out. And so I imagine, and knowing what I know about uh, her later in the series and what I know about him as an author with other books, I... I I suspect that that is more the book being a product of its time than a book being the product of the author. For sure. Does that make any sense? Oh, for sure. Okay. Uh, but even even with that, I would have been more. Uh, I I would have been more interested in her as a character had she been a 
femme fatale <laughs> <More> interesting trope <laughs> yeah okay. rather than just a damsel trope <laughs> like not yeah. even a damsel <laughs> well no no she is a damsel in distress what am i talking about she gets captured and like sent to hell uh <laughs> well she she and everybody else yeah yeah, yeah. um but it, I don't know. I, I'm having a little bit of a hard time kind of separating my literary analysis. You know, this book was published, what was it, 1986, 87? 86. 86. 86. Yeah, and, and I've been reading the Garrett P.I. books, which started in the mid-80s as well. And, yeah. and I have really enjoyed the portrayal of some of the female characters in that series specifically because they're femme fatale figures um mm. <laughs> uh, not all of them but a lot of them because of course you know garrett pi i'll just do a quick pitch for it if you like the dresden files go check out garrett pi the first book is called sweet silver blues um you know urban fantasy called what now Sweet Silver Blues. Okay. Uh, yeah, Ur- urban fantasy. The main character is a private investigator. Uh, it, it opens. You know, if you've if you've read Stormfront, it opens exactly the same way. If you've read any detective, hard boiled detective noir book, opens the exact same way as all of them do. You know, he's got his rundown office, his name on the window, and. A, a damsel in distress shows up at the door to give him a, a an investigative job, you know. And so y- you have that type of character, and I wanted Willow to be that type of character, or to be a full on villain character, because I think that would have been a ton of fun. But yeah. but that just I mean that wasn't the kind of story that Terry Brooks was interested in telling you know he his his female villain was nightshade you know who lasts for a single chapter um and is wildly interesting i really like her chapter a uh, lot. right like but it only lasts a chapter so. uh, yeah i is there okay i don't care about spoilers is there more of her in the series Oh yeah! Oh, thank, oh yeah! Thank goodness. Good. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's. I, I will quickly pitch this. If you like, if you read this book and you like this book, if, if you don't like it, then fine. You got a whole story front to back, and you can leave it behind, and you know, no harm, no foul. If you enjoyed this story, everything you saw in this story gets a lot more screen time in the next several books. Okay. Uh, so if you like Strabo the Dragon, if you like Nightshade, if you like the Lords of the Greensward, if you like the, what's the, the elf guy in the, the, the oh, water kingdom? Oh, the whatever. fairy Willow's father. Yeah, the uh, river country, the river, whatever, the river master or whatever he's called. Um, yeah, the river <laughs> master. All, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get, you get a lot more of, uh, of that stuff in future books. So yeah, keep reading if you enjoyed it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> let's let's quickly run through the other uh, good characters. We've got Abernathy, who is the court scribe. He was accidentally turned into a dog, and that's essentially his story. He's a persnickety uh, scribe type guy, and that's it. He's the secretary. He keeps track of things, keeps things running. Um, you've got a couple of kobolds who are fun but flat, uh, and they exist as bodyguards. And then you've got <laughs> Quester Thews. Quest, Quester 
which is a great name uh, for a story like this. Quester is the court wizard, and you know he shows up just like Gandalf or Dumbledore or whatever the the uh, the flashy robes and the long gray beard. I am the court scribe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but then it turns out he completely sucks <laughs> at yeah. magic and is a wonderful comic character. Uh, he is always screwing up his spells. Um, and, and so you, you always expect, oh, well, Quester might be able to get us out of this, and then he never does. Um, but there is one little moment of interest in when you find out that Quester is the half-brother of the man who sold the Magic Kingdom to Ben, right. a man by the name of Meeks. Quester is Meeks' half-brother, and he claims to have uh, taken on the job as court scribe and spy for Meeks in order to work against Meeks and help the the prospective kings of Landover uh, to help them establish themselves on the throne. Um, Do you find anything interesting in him, or or shall we move on? (sighs) Not really. Not a ton. Yeah, not a ton. It's... uh, (laughs) He gets, he gets, uh, like I said, Ben is the only one who gets any sort of arc, uh, but Quester gets a few moments here and there where he struggles with himself uh, and his self-confidence um, and then ultimately finds something approaching self-confidence toward the end of the book. Yeah, like, there was, had this book, again, had this been 500 pages or 600 pages instead of 300 there could have been room for Quester to have a more interesting character arc. Uh, you know, we could have delved into his agreement with Meeks. You know, right. his, his kind of duplicity in helping, uh, you know, the the scam that's going on. Or not even the scam, but the, the game that's going on with Meeks and, and the old prince to make money. Uh but we we just kind of we got that information and then moved past it you know yeah yeah. Uh, what's more interesting to me now that we bring this up is the question of who is the antagonist in this book is it Meeks is it the Iron Mark the, the demon lord is it Strabo the dragon or Nightshade the witch I my here's what I would posit the the antagonist in this book is the protagonist of this book. Yeah. Can Ben Holiday overcome his own uh, his own past, his own emotions? Um, can he overcome himself and establish himself as king? Right. Yes, I I completely agree there. Uh, in a very baseline sense, the Mark is the antagonist. Or the, or the Mark is the villain, I should say. Right, yeah. But Ben is his own antagonist. Which does make it, um, in a weird way, it makes it a, a non-standard story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've been talking about how, how tropey it is, but in this way, at least, it's not tropey at all. Uh, but at the same time, it also makes it much, much more relatable. Yep. That, or I, I should say uh, easily relatable, where when you are reading about Frodo carrying the ring, you have to take a little extra step to say, like, okay, so the ring is Frodo's shadow self, or, yes. you know, whatever story, you know, fill in the blank. 
the antagonist is often the shadow of uh, of the protagonist. But in this case, you are presented with a story where if you are identifying with the protagonist here, you are identifying with the fact that he is uh, subliminally, or however you want to put it, working against himself the Mm -hmm. whole time, and he has to overcome that. I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, It is non-standard. Though... As you were talking through it, I was like, ooh, that's that's kind of what I did with, <laughs> with, with your book. With my, my most recent Drew, book. Drew coming in with the humble brag. All right. <laughs> no, not, not even a humble brag. It just <laughs> it, one of the things I like specifically did with that book is that there is a character who is the villain for sure. He's like the main enemy figure, but he's barely on the page. And yeah. and most of what he's doing is like in the shadows and the main characters are more dealing with their own problems, you know, than they are trying to fight against this guy because they don't even know he exists. And I don't know, uh, but that's a that's a conversation for another time. But uh, <laughs> when we when we cover your book on the legendary. Yeah, ooh, exactly. I like the sound of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, anyway, I guess I just wanted to make sure that we ran through the characters, didn't forget anybody, uh, you know, so I, I, I can avoid any, you know, too many emails, I guess I should say. Um, <laughs> I, so I, I think we've covered everything pretty well. My question for you now, Drew, as we wrap up this podcast is this. Uh, first of all, would you recommend this book? And second of all, will you go on with the series? Uh, I will absolutely recommend this book. Uh, I I align with your thought process a lot. Uh, I think this is a great intro book. Normally, I have been in that, that group recommending The Eye of the World or Mistborn, The Final Empire as an intro to fantasy book. Mm-hmm. This... Which are... These are fine... Uh, examples i yeah when i say that i like this one the most it's not that i don't like those others as possible uh entry points those are great books and great entry points yeah and depending on the person asking me i probably will still you know recommend those from time to time but this is a uh another really good entry point and for the reasons i mentioned earlier perhaps a better entry point because it provides so many different avenues into subtypes of speculative fiction. You know, I, I can, I can give them this and if they like it for one reason, I can say, all right, here's Lord of the Rings and, and the Chronicles of Narnia. They like it for another reason. Here's Grimdark. Here's the Axe of Cain. Here's, you know, or, or they like it for a third reason. Here's Mistborn. Here's the Cosmere. Here's, you know, whatever. There is so much flexibility with this book. Now, will I continue with the series? Probably eventually. But not immediately? Not high on the list. Okay. Uh, And and this is, I mean, this is me. I... My list is already ridiculous. I have <laughs> I have my own podcast to, to tend to. I have my review stuff 
you know, to deal with. And, and books like this are more palate cleansers for me. I do tend to enjoy the stuff like, you know, like I mentioned, A Desolation Called Peace, you know, Memory Called Empire by Arcady Martin, uh, The Book of the New Sun, you know, the, these more like literary involved, uh, rich demanding. Yeah. Rich prose, just, uh, something that I can read through, not necessarily crazy fast, but that force me to slow down and think about it. And then I'm like, Ooh, you know, and, and then I can dig things out of it to apply to my own writing. And that's not to say that I can't apply anything from this book to my own writing. Cause I absolutely can. But, but this type of story much more falls in the lines of like, all right, I want to read something fun and light, uh, and, and less, you know, um, intellectually oppressive. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to put it. Um, you know, in between, uh, you're like, Oh, I like last year when I, spent eight months reading basically nothing but the stormlight archive i'm like look those are giant books with tons of stuff going on and i just needed something easy to read (laughs) yeah you know and and even if this book got got profound and got dark at points it's a lot easier to read than rhythm of war which is four times as long you know (laughs) Oh, it's more than that. <laughs> so. I, I probably go with six or seven times as long, uh, at minimum. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, no, that's that's good. That kind of tracks with me. It's it's one of those ones where, um, is it necessary for somebody to read for their historical education in fantasy literature? No, absolutely not. Is it um, is it the greatest work of literary fiction of all time? No, absolutely not. Uh, but it's a fantastic entry point. I think it's a lot of fun. If somebody's looking for a palate cleanser, it's a lot of fun. And like I said before, if you do enjoy it, there's a whole world to explore. And he does spend five more books exploring it. Uh, so you can you can enjoy that or not as you wish. I, I just, I love books like this that give you those options um, and the kind of closure that this does at the end of the book. Yeah, so. that's, that's a good point. Uh, tying back to... Sanderson, for instance, a lot of his books demand you to read the next one to, to finish the series. You, you read the first book and, and it's like, there is more. And if you want to get your satisfaction from this, you have to read them. Right. That is not the case with Magic Kingdom for Sale. It certainly sells more books. <laughs> well, <know>? yeah, <laughs> uh, that way. But um, but no, I, I, I like this on as a one-off uh, exercise. Anyway, all right, let's wrap it up there, Drew, and call it good here. I do welcome everybody's uh, comments, uh, of course. So please go to our Discord server, go to Reddit, whatever. Check the show notes for links there. I've got links there. I've got links at thelegendarium.com where you can join in the conversation wherever you so choose we do have a we're closing in on uh you know we've got thousands of members on discord and facebook and twitter and whatever else uh but we're closing in on 750 people in our discord server 
Uh, it's an incredibly active and inviting place, so come hang out with us there. We'd love to see you. Go to patreon.com slash legendarium. Uh, that's where you can go support the show. If you like what you see here, uh, like I mentioned on an episode or two ago, uh, we don't do anything extra for Patreon, so sorry You know, if you're looking for a bunch of behind the scenes or uh, whatever. We don't really do that. We're, we're kind of using it as a, the tip jar for the piano man. If you enjoy what we do, then drop a buck per episode in the jar. We'd really appreciate it. Go to patreon.com slash legendarium. Uh, and we do post a few extras there every now and then. I just uh, you know, hesitate <laughs> to promise anything. Anyway, uh, thank you everybody for listening to this episode. Stay tuned for future stuff from myself and Ryan and the, the red team. Stay tuned for the blue team. They're going to be doing uh, some very interesting things coming up. So make sure you are uh, sticking around for that. Go to YouTube. Subscribe to us there. Drew. Thank you so much for joining us, joining me today, I should say. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, everybody go subscribe to Inking Out Loud. And uh, if you do that, I can promise you'll get at least, what, three episodes with me on there and one with Megan. Ooh, uh, yeah. That... I don't know how many I've done with you guys. It's been a few. Yeah, you, you did a you did so. a couple of Wheel of Time episodes and, oh, oh and, a, and a couple of Stormlight episodes as well. So maybe more like five. Oh, gosh. Uh, okay, well, i tell you what. <laughs> Including you, I, one episode I'll, that counts as three by itself. <laughs> that's true. So you send me my gold jacket for Inking Out Loud, and I'll send you a, a gold-rimmed uh, beer glass for, uh, you know, with the Legendarium logo on it. Perfect. So, all right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye.